I thought I would take just a moment uh, here in the service to take a little stop in the book of John. You've been so encouraging. I know that that's ministered to many of you, but I knew that this would be the Lord's table today, and I am heading out for a little vacation afterwards, so pray for us. In fact, I look back on my schedule. I've been out preaching, you know, to Malawi and a few times in the pulpit, but I've not been away on a Sunday or any days with my family all year, so pray that we get some rest, and then I'm going to be dropping my son off at medical school uh, The part of, at the end of this week in St. Louis. He will start there, so pray for our family as we go a little time to Lake Powell, and then I take him across to drop him off for school. But a couple things piqued my interest um, to address the title this morning, The Great Exchange, because two conversations were key. First, a couple of weeks ago, after Kent Dresdo spoke at our summer fest, and he was explaining the righteous life of Christ, did a wonderful job. It was just a wonderful sermon to hear about the perfect life of Christ. After he spoke, I came up just for about a couple minutes and, and made the statement that if it, if it wasn't, that, that salvation doesn't only include the forgiveness of sins, that if you only had your sins forgiven, you would stand neutral before God, but that you needed something else and you needed righteousness. And um, I think somebody came up to me or somebody had spoken to somebody that they didn't quite understand what I had met there. And uh, somebody else had asked that same question, maybe realizing and recognizing. So often we say that salvation is the forgiveness of sins, and it is. But it's much more than that, and there's something else that, that is needed. So I felt the urge for a few weeks to be able to speak to you on the great exchange to clarify anything for our body. And then secondly, I attended a funeral this last month from someone in our church, a Catholic funeral. I went to the church to support this family. And uh, at the very beginning of the service, the priest, as they always would at a Catholic funeral, stated that so-and-so was in heaven because of his baptism. And that's very common. They teach that. I'll explain that in just a moment, that he went to heaven because as an infant, he was sprinkled. And I sat there, which usually I'm not sitting in the congregation. I'm usually performing one of those. And I thought, why or how could he say that? How can one even make that statement? And so I'm just moved this morning to address to you before the Lord's table what the scriptures teach regarding the righteousness of God. That's my theme, the righteousness of God. And I've titled the message, The Great Exchange. And maybe I just begin by asking you this question, how does one, it's the ultimate question, how does one become righteous before God? I mean, there is no huge, there couldn't be a bigger question than that. That is the question that's always been the biggest one in human existence ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. I could reframe it and say, how does one get to heaven? And I thought if we are to safeguard the truth of the gospel at Grace Church of the Valley, 
We have got to understand the doctrine of justification by faith. And so that's my theme. It's justification by faith. It's the righteousness of God. And so as we prepare for the Lord's table, I just would like to ask and answer two questions regarding the nature of justification. Okay? First, what is justification? What is it? Uh, What's its meaning? And secondly, and maybe just super important, how is one justified? And that's, we'll title, the instrument, okay? But first of the two questions to ask and then answer is what is justification? What is it? If you take your Bible, open it this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, Paul is very clear there. In fact, maybe I should at least at the outset say that justification is indeed a biblical term. We will never shy away from a term here at Grace Church of the Valley. It is, a, it is used all over in the scripture. I'll just highlight a few just so you can lock in. In 320, Paul says this, that by works of the law, no human being, here's our word, will be justified in his sight. Okay, there it is. He's just simply saying that by no deeds, no merit, no works of the law, could anyone ever be justified in his sight. If you glance down in that same chapter, look at Romans 3.24. There he says in 3.23, that famous verse, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are, in 3.24, justified by His grace as a gift. There it is again. We're justified, not through works in 3.20, but in 3.24, we're justified uh, as a gift of His grace. Look again at Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Again, this is a common theme in the scripture. You can even glance down if you want it. Romans 3.30, for or since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, he justifies the Gentile as well as the Jew. Now, how can we understand this most crucial doctrine? Let me say this at the outset, that when you talk about the doctrine of justification, in justification, Something is removed and something is added, okay? In other words, there's always a a transaction in the mind and the heart of God and in the Scripture that something is removed and something is added. Justification, just to be concise with you, is the removal of sin. And secondly, it is the imparting of of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So something is negative, you got to remove the sin, and something is positive, it is the righteousness of Christ. Something must be removed from your account, if you will, and then something must be placed into your account. But if you're taking notes here, under that first question, what is justification? Let's look two subpoints under this. First, Sin must be removed. In other words, for someone to be justified, and I still haven't defined it, so hang on with me. You, you've, to be justified, you've got to remove sin. 
Sin, of course, biblically, is the great barrier for us before God. No one will ever be justified in his sight in the presence of sin. In fact, as you well know, when Isaiah saw himself in the presence of God, he saw himself as a moral leper before a holy God. And it led him to repent. Sin, Grace Church of the Valley, is always against God. And the one who sins, if you will, cannot be right with God. And so then the question would be begged, how can someone be right with God? And the answer is, you cannot be right with God on your own. There's not anyone in this room or 7 billion people breathing on the face of the earth that can make themselves right with God. Of course, that's a foreign message because most religions are working their way to some state of righteousness. But biblically, you can't work and do enough to be righteous before God. And beloved, as we've been studying at Summerfest, the wonderful news is is that God, through Christ, dealt with your sin. He has taken it away. He has removed your sin when he justified you. In other words, in that transaction of saving you, one of the blessings of salvation is justification. When you are justified in his sight, he removes your sin and he declares you not guilty. Not guilty. Uh, scriptures, they're all over, but Psalm 32, David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I love that. Your transgression in salvation, in justification, is forgiven. Your sin, if you will, is covered. And David said in Psalm 32, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Beloved, listen, if you're here this morning and we're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment, your sin in Christ is covered. Your sin in Christ is removed. That when he saved you and when he justified you, he removed your sin. Now enough to say this. What is justification, Scott? Well, let me just tell you what it means, and I'll just put it in a little bit of a formal uh, declaration, okay? It is a legal act, and I don't make bones to say it's a legal act. It's a transaction, if you will, in the throne room of God. It is a legal act by which God declares the sinner righteous in his sight. That's what it is. It is, a, it is a verdict, if you will. It is a legal declaration of God declaring you, the sinner, me, the sinner righteous in his sight. And what justification states is that you are, and I know some of you might not believe this, you, practically, you are completely forgiven completely forgiven. 
you will no longer ever be punished for your sin. When you come to Christ and He justifies you, Romans 3, He is removing your sin. And let me just make this clear to you that unlike the doctrine of sanctification where we become more holy, more holy, more holy, justification, on the other hand, is instantaneous. When you came to Christ, He removed all your sin. He immediately, in that act, in that declaration, made you righteous. And justification doesn't come in parts and components. It's complete. So you can go back to that time when God opened your heart, and I'm telling you, He declared you righteous in His sight. It is God acting on you. Okay? He justifies the ungodly. Look over just for a moment, a couple pages at Romans 5.1. Certainly you remember that wonderful statement there. Therefore, Paul says, since we, he says, have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. And of course, it's through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace comes to us um, because of the forgiveness. And so when he justified you, he declared you righteous and just to beg the point, look at Romans 5.1 in your text. Since we have been, what language? Justified, past tense, if you will, okay? He justified you. If you're in Christ, he removed your sin. Look over at Paul at Romans 8.1. You know this to be true because of this. There is therefore, in 8.1, now no, what? condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means, beloved, that in Christ, you're going to hear me say that, in Christ, in Him, we are not subject to any charge of condemnation. Period. Now, some of you don't live that way because you think you got to get on the treadmill and work, but I'm telling you, He declared you righteous according to the Scripture. Now, the question begs itself, how can God, is this fair, pronounce the wicked, you, me, righteous? How are your sins taken away? And on what basis does He forgive your sin? That's an ultimate question. How does He do that? And the answer is, is shocking. You say, how does he do that? Look back in Romans 3. Let me show you from the text. Here's how he did that. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There it is. He justified you as a gift through his redemption. And of course, a wonderful biblical term of the redeemer redeeming us back, if you will, from being auctioned because of our sin. The redemption always comes at the payment of a price. And here, your sins are removed in the death of Jesus Christ. That's how one's justified. There's salvation in no one else. In fact, look over in Romans chapter 5, look at verse 9. Here again, linking here, 
How does God do that? Remove the sins in his death. He says in 5.9, since therefore we have been justified by his, what? Blood. That's how someone gets saved. They're saved in the death of Jesus Christ. You say, Scott, make the connection. What I'm saying and what the scripture is saying is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross in that act of his death, okay, and we'll speak about this in a moment, when he went to the cross, he bore your sin. He bore your sin. And when you trust him, he removes your sin through the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, look at Romans 5.10. He says there, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, and here it is, by the death of his Son. So we were not only redeemed in his death, we were reconciled in his death, Whereas you were once separated from God, alienated from God, apart from God, Jesus died on the cross, and when he came to die for your sin at communion, he redeemed you, and he not only redeemed you, he reconciled you. In other words, he took that separation that existed and bridged it, if you will, in the death of Jesus Christ. Look over at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 in verse 33. That wonderful statement there when Paul asks the rhetorical question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer is, begged there, no one. Because look at the next statement in 33. It is God who, what? He justifies. If God, beloved, declared you righteous, Who could bring a charge against you? The devil can't. Satan can't. Your own conscience may accuse you, but nobody can bring a charge against you because God's the one who declared you righteous in his sight. Look at verse 34. It says there, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who, what? Died. He already stepped in your place and took your punishment he was condemned for you peter puts it this way when he says he himself bore our sins on the cross do you realize that in the infinite mind and heart of god he had you in mind when he died on the cross he bore your sins on the cross isaiah speaking of the suffering servant said that he was smitten by god he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. It was the will of the Lord in 53.10 to crush him. So listen, in justification, God charged your sin to Christ. God removed your sin as far as the east is from the what? From the west. He remembers your sin no more. The penalty for your sin has been paid. And God's justice is satisfied in Christ. And his wrath has been exhausted on Christ for you. This is why the scripture says justified. And it's put in past tense. Your sins are forgiven. Charles Wesley. Remember the great hymn, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing? He said he breaks, you know it. The power of canceled sin. 
He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the what? The foulest clean. His blood, what? Availed for me. Listen, when God justifies you, he forgave you all your sin. And I mean that, not just now, not just past, past, present, and what? Future. You say, well, Scott, then I still need to confess my sin. Yes, go listen to the tape on 1 John 1, 9 when we walk through 1 John. You're in a relationship with Christ. But positionally, he already forgave you for all your sins. That's why there's no condemnation. However, okay, that's my transition, okay? There is more, right? There is more to the gospel than the forgiveness of sin. Let that sink in. I mean, I think you're with me on that. That's what I basically said at Summerfest. There's something more. You need, I need, something else. Something else is added in the Scripture. Secondly, what you need, and you know this, I think, we'll review it, righteousness is added. So you've got to have your sins removed, but secondly, you've got to have something put into your account, and it's called righteousness. It's called the righteousness of God. And I think that's what I was trying to say at Summerfest that night. If you only had your sins forgiven, ah, you, we'd stand neutral before God. You can't just get into his presence without sin. You need something else to get into his presence. And what you need, according to the Bible, is righteousness. The reformers in church history called this alien righteousness. And I always like that. It helps me. It's alien. Now, some of you are thinking alien. Don't think outer space. In other words, it's alien. It's a righteousness that comes outside of yourself. In other words, the righteousness isn't in you. It's not in me. It's alien. In other words, it's got to come to you from the outside. Look back at Romans chapter 3. Okay? Let me show you this. These are terms that are used in biblical terminology. Romans 3.21 Just look at that opening statement. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the works of the law. In other words, Paul's just saying you need righteousness, but he's saying it comes. You understand, this is evangelical Christianity. It doesn't come to us by works. It comes from something else, something apart from the law. Look what he says in 3.22. He says, it's the righteousness of God through faith, and then here's that key, in Christ Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, for all who believe. You say, well, Scott, what is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is His perfection, okay? You need that to get into His presence. You need perfection. You need the righteousness of God, or you can't get there. Got to have your sins removed, but Scripture says something else. You need righteousness. We don't have that righteousness. In fact, look over at Paul in Romans 4.3. Look what he said there. Remember when he said, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as what? Righteousness. So I think you're seeing it there. I'll, I'll, I'll fill it out a little bit. He believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Well, what is this righteousness? Look in your New Testament over to the book of Philippians. Let me just detail this from the scripture. Look over in the book of Philippians when Paul was giving his, kind of his own testimony a little bit. What you, because I'm trying to describe what is righteousness here. I mentioned that it's perfection, but remember in Philippians 3, I love it. Here's the most succinct way in 3.9. Remember when Paul said there, I want to be found in him. Huge statement. Not having what? A righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Now you can stop there. I don't have time. If anybody was righteous, it was Paul. If anybody was zealous, it was Paul. If anybody was passionate, it was Paul. If anybody was out putting people into jail, it was Paul. If anybody was holding coats for people to be stoned, it was Paul. He was to the, to the law. He was the most zealous of them all. But he said there, after he got saved, he didn't want to have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. But watch this. But that which comes through faith in who? Christ. It comes from Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He wanted and was found as having a righteousness that was coming through Christ. Now stop there. That's what Kent Dresdo addressed that night. His perfect life. We don't talk a lot about this. We talk a lot and rightfully so. When, when I went to go study the righteousness of God, I can go into my library and tell my secretary, bring my books on the atonement, on the death of Christ. And they're instantly off my shelf, 20 books. But if I were to tell her, hey, go find the books on the righteousness of Christ, she'd probably say, well, what's that? And where do I get that? But the righteousness of Christ, as Kent so appropriately said, is his sinless, perfect life. Now, now watch this. Let me connect the dots here. In justifying you, God forgives your sin, but also he imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ into your account. So much so that right now, as you sit here on July 26th, God sees Christ's righteousness as belonging to you. You know that, right? Like when he looks at you, he's looking at you through Christ, through his righteous life. You say, well, how does that work though? I mean, okay, what do you mean he he sees me as belonging to Christ? Let me show you. Look in your Bible, go back to 2 Corinthians 5. This is a classic, classic statement. Here's how. Wonderful statement. One of the best in all of the scripture. Here it is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Star this one. Memorize this one. For our sake, Paul says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the what? The righteousness of God. Just for a moment. He made him who knew no sin. Kent talked about that. Jesus never sinned. Jesus lived a perfect life. That night he talked about the perfect catch, the perfect goal, 
But here, when he pointed back to Christ, did Kent say he lived a perfect life? He knew no sin. Peter, in his gospel or his epistle, excuse me, said he committed no sin. John the Apostle in 1 John, as we saw a year back, in him there is no sin. The writer of Hebrews says in 4.15, he's tempted in all things and yet without what? Sin. We know that. He made him who knew no sin, look back in 21. He said, for our sake he made him to be what? Sin. So that, I like this phrase, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me unpack this. So important. In justification, God forgives sin. Then he also, this is the other half, imputes into your account the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And this he does, the beginning phrase, for our sake. So listen, you say, what do you mean? Justification. I get it. He removes, on the one hand, completely and forever. Then positively, he puts, if you will, for the sake of an expression, into your bank account the perfect life of Jesus Christ so that as Jesus views you as coming to communion, he sees you as perfect. Now, our desire is to live that out, and we're never going to attain to that in this life. But I want you to know, positionally, he's already forgiven you in Christ and already put the righteousness of his account into you. So just as God made Christ to be sin and charged the guilt of your sin to him, so too he credits the righteous life of Jesus Christ to our account. And that is why we call it the great, what? Exchange. In justifying you before God, you are forgiven at the cross and you are given his righteousness all at the same time. Wonderful truth. <laughs> the best truth. Did not the hymn writer Wesley, you know this one if you've been in church for a little bit. No condemnation. Now I, what? Dread Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in what? Righteousness, what? Divine. He clothed you in that. You are clothed. You say, but Scott, I haven't, I'm not, I haven't kept all the Bible. He did. You say, but Scott, I haven't really kept all the law. He did. You say, but Scott, I haven't lived the perfect life that I'm supposed to live. He did. And what he did is when you came to Christ, he put the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he lived to perfection into your accounts. But listen, there's a key to understanding this phrase, and I, I got to show it to you. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This could take months, but I got a few minutes, okay? It says, for our sake. It says, you, you say, how does he do that, Scott? He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that, this little phrase, in what? Him. Stop there just for a second. You are biblically in union with Christ. In him. Okay? You say, well, Scott, this is heavy stuff. No, it's not. This is basic 101 for Grace Church of the Valley. You're in him. We call that union with Christ. You're in a living relationship with him. 
50, 150 different times in the New Testament, Paul says, in him, in Christ, in him, in Christ, through Christ, by Christ. You're in him. You're in a living relationship with him. Okay? And he is your representative. You say, in what? Both his sinless life and in his sin-bearing death. Let me explain this. Jerry Bridges was helpful. He uses the phrase representative union. And he points over to Romans chapter 5. Do you remember where Paul taught there that Adam was appointed by God to represent, was Adam, the entire human race? And in a sense, Paul said in Romans 5, we are all in Adam. Therefore, when Adam sinned, we all, what? Sinned in Adam. But when I was a young man, I thought, what a bummer. You mean he sinned, now I sinned? Yeah. You mean when he did that, I sinned? Yeah, you, you, you were there in that sense in the garden. Because it becomes a reflection of every human being that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Okay? And the guilt and the consequence of his sin fell upon all of us. We are spiritually dead by choice, by nature, and children of wrath. But Paul went on to draw the analogy and by contrast taught us that in Romans 5, just as Adam was the representative head of humanity, so Christ is the representative head of all who trust him as Savior. So just as we might say, when Adam sinned, I sinned, you may also say this, that when Christ died on the cross, I died on the cross. In fact, this is what Paul is essentially saying when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. Okay? Now, let me just make this one point. Bridges said this in the transforming power of the gospel. This just stunned me. He said, consider Jesus in his humanity. He said, Jesus in his humanity was just as holy as God sitting on his throne. Bridges said, there's not one iota of difference. God's holy, so is Christ. And what Jesus was in his life, we are in our standing before God because Jesus was our representative in both his life and death. So as far as our standing before God is concerned, this is the truth. When he lived a perfect life, we lived a perfect life. When he died on the cross, when he died, we died on the cross. All that Jesus did, both in his sinless life and in his sin-bearing death, he did as our representative and as our substitutes. So that in justifying us, Christ charged us with the guilt of our sin, or to Christ, right? And we are credited with the righteousness of Christ. This is something, beloved, of what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 5.21. In him, in him, we've become the righteousness of God. So because, beloved, of God's great exchange, all who trust Christ as Savior, let me be clear here, stand before God. You remember the children's description of justification? I think you do. 
just as if I never, what? Sinned. In other words, if you're justified, it's just as if I never sinned. But listen, you can add to that with righteousness. Just as if I always obeyed. It's incredible. It's the great exchange. Just as if I never sinned, he removed your sin. And just as if I've always obeyed, I haven't always obeyed. I know, but he has. (laughs) He has. But it's always both these elements. Listen, since moving to the valley, I've become, well, I've just tried to adapt to the valley, okay? I, I bought a pair of boots, okay? Okay? I now am the owner of a shotgun, okay? Now, the new one is, are, are you ready for this? I now ride a horse, okay? Blake, boys, I see you out there. You rode, was it a big bull or was it a mutton? It was a bull, okay. He was riding at the rodeo. I, I now ride horses, okay? And I was riding this last week. It's really fun. And I, I won't say who with, but Johnny Deeperslow's a pretty good rider, okay? I was riding with Johnny, and we got separated somewhere on the mountain. And when he returned from riding, all I can say is he looked a mess. He had dirt all over him, but it wasn't just dirt. I looked at him. I go, what happened to you? He had mud all over him. And it wasn't just like mud that was like splattered on him. He, I could tell like looking at his pants, he had mud all the way up to here, okay? And then I looked over at his horse, and the mud had all over, was all over the horse. It was, it was actually hilarious, really, what it was. And the only thing funnier would be to see what he explained to me next. I said, what happened to you? He said, well, I was driving down by around the, this creek bed. <laughs> I would have laughed first, Johnny. I just, I wish I would have seen you. He's driving and, you know, riding, we call it, right? <laughs> because when I got back after I saw him, I thought, I told Patty, I'm the man from Kingsburg River, not the man from Snowy River, you know. So he... His horse, I don't know how to say it, went into a bog, went into quicksand. And before he could know it, the horse was all the way up to its underbelly in mud. And there was Johnny on the horse. You stayed on, didn't you? He was was close. He was close. He stayed on. So when I got back, when he got back, I saw him and I said, you are a mess. Now let me, this is, now I'm taking you into an account. This didn't happen. But what if I asked Johnny? What do you need to do before you sit down for dinner tonight? Okay? And he replied, honestly, I, I need, he didn't, but I'm just putting this for an illustration, okay? I, I need to take a shower and I need to put clean clothes on. Let's say I said, how about just putting on clean clothes without taking a shower? Oh, no, I would never do that, he replied. Then I said, how about you just taking a shower and putting your muddy clothes back on? No, no, that wouldn't do either. So I said, you need to do both. You need to both take a shower and you need to take your dirty clothes off and put 
clean clothes on? The answer would, of course, be yes. Listen, when, when God saved you, we are covered, if you will, in the filth of our sin. How do you get that thing off? How do you get rid of that ugly thing called sin? How do you get a clean conscience? How do you get a pure conscience? How can you know you're going to heaven? How do you get justified? Listen, it's not in you. The only way you can come to Christ is to have him justify you and for him to remove your sin. But if he just removed your sin and you'd stand before God and he would just be holy, you need something else into your account. You need to go put in the illustration clean clothes on. You need to go put the clothes of Jesus Christ and his righteousness on for you and I ever to get into his presence. That's justification. Remember the great hymn, Rock of Ages? Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the what? The double cure save from wrath, and make me pure. Listen, the reformers, and in that hymn, it's the double cure. And, and my point that night at Summerfest is it's not the single cure. Now, it is the single cure. You and I agree. If somebody came up to me and said, Scott, if you're saved, are your sins forgiven? Yeah. And I get that. We're talking about that. But what we're really addressing, biblical theology, is a double cure. The double cure is you need something removed and you need to put on righteousness. And that's what Jesus Christ did. Sins forgiven and Christ's righteousness added. That were, in that sense, you are justified, not guilty before God. The hymn by Edward Mote put it well, When he shall come with trumpet sound, Oh, may I then in him be found, Dressed in his righteousness alone, Faultless to stand before the throne. That's what we're talking about. You've got to be dressed in his righteousness alone. Now, that's just the first question. And we're almost out of time. <laughs> we are. But let me just give you this. And I've got to say this. How is one justified? How, you might be sitting here, and I'm just talking. And you're agreeing. Removed, added. Removed, added. Guilt, condemnation, taken away, added, right? How do you get that? How do you get in him? If all these things happen by our union with him, how do you get in Christ? Well, listen. When you trust Christ, he not only forgives your sin, but he credits to your account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let me show you how this comes to one. Look over at Romans 4. You've you got to know this. Men, you've got to know this. Men, we're talking at men's equippers starting on September 23rd about the gospel. But here it is in Romans 5. You know it. And to the one who does not work but, what? 4-5. Believes in him who, What? justifies. You've got to put your faith in Christ. You say, how does it become mine? Second question, how is one justified? By faith in Christ. You say, well, what do you mean by faith? I'm telling you that the Bible says that when you bow your knee to the Savior, okay, just live it out, right? 
when you bow your knee, this is what I did when I was 14. And by faith, I look to Christ. In that moment, he declares me righteous. And in that moment, he forgives my sin. And in that moment, he puts into my account the righteousness of Christ. But the Bible says that it comes through faith. Have you ever trusted him this morning? I'm not asking about your mom, not asking about your dad, not asking about your grandpa, your grandma. I just want to know you sitting out here, men, you who lead your families, not just coming to church, have you got to the place where you've put your faith in Christ? Listen, that is the instrument upon which justification comes to you. In fact, look at it. I'll show you. Romans 3, okay? In 3.22, it says there, the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 3.26. It says there, it says that it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at 328, for we hold that one is justified by what? Faith, okay? Look at Romans 3.30, since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith, and, the, and he says, and the uncircumcised through faith. Beloved God credits the perfect obedience of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ to us, not on the basis of our works, but on your response in faith to him. That's the gospel, and that's the gospel that goes to everyone, okay? Now, I just always think, even as we come to the Lord's table, you and I are going to drift towards works. You're going to drift. You're going you're to just get on drift. Say, so why would I drift towards works? Because you'd say it's grace, but sometimes when you get in Christ, you just, you just keep drifting. I'm just going to call it to the right, okay? You're just drifting because somehow you just always feel like he's never forgiven your sin. And you're drifting because you forgot that he justified you. And we drift even in Christ towards our own good works and towards the stuff. Listen, I'm already telling you, he forgave all your sins. But if you don't drift that way, there's half of you that drift this way. You're drifting big time left and it's called legalism. And you're drifting left and you're drifting left and you think there's something you got to do and something you got to do and something you're supposed to do. And some of that might be healthy, but you're drifting and you, you become legalistic and you forget the work of Jesus Christ that he gives you this gift as a gift. You can't pay for it. And he gives it to you out of his own sovereign will. And when he gives it to you, he forgave you all. And you say, Scott, is there a solution to one of those drifts? Yeah, it's remembering the great exchange every single day of your life. Remember in the great exchange, listen, when you put your head on the pillow tonight, you just ought to be so grateful that God did this for you, amen? I mean, can you believe the great exchange? There's nothing better than that. Can you believe that he takes all your sins and casts them into the deepest part of the sea, as far as the east is from the west? He removes them from you, he brings, and then on the other hand, he, he puts into your account the righteousness of Christ, and he clo- it's the greatest gift in the whole world. There's nothing better than that. Nothing. And so listen, as we come to the Lord's table, we'll stop right there. Do you have that? Have you come to faith in Christ? You say, what do you mean faith in Christ? I hear that all the time. Faith, 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 faith. Okay, you can't over it. But faith just means you come to the end of yourself. 
It's not your faith that saves you. I want to be super clear there. If you, if you were saved by your faith, then your faith then becomes a what? A work. Faith in the scripture, I've told you this, always has a direct object. You're saved by faith in the work of another, and that another is God's beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you come to saving faith, you begin to run to the cross. You cling to the cross. It's the treasure hidden in the field. You go out and sell all that you have to get this treasure because you'll do anything because you want Christ. That's faith. Faith pushes everything away with one hand and reaches out to Christ with the other because he's the only one who can give you this. And so you have to express faith, but it's not your faith, it's faith in what another has done. 